It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason, but then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? My guest today is Micah Redding. He's a Christian transhumanist and the executive director of the Christian Transhumanist Association, or the CTA. And we'll get there in a minute. But first, let me introduce you to Micah. He has a background in software development, and in addition to his work with the Christian Transhumanist Association, which includes hosting his own podcast, you should hit it up, it's very cool, he's working on a Master of Science in Philosophy, Science, and Religion at the University of Edinburgh. Micah is a preacher's kid, a fourth-generation graduate of a small Christian university. Now he's directing traffic at the intersection of AI and Christianity. Micah Redding, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gretchen. It's great to be here. So it'll be fun conversation. Well, Micah, before we talk about Christian transhumanism, I think it'd be good to review some other terms first and anchor our conversation around what these terms mean. So specifically, I'd like you to talk about the concept of humanism first, and it's often referred to as secular humanism. And then two other concepts that are often used fungibly and probably not accurately, post-humanism and transhumanism. How have these concepts been used historically? How are they used now? And what do they mean? Give us a podcast version of a glossary of terms. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so I would look at humanism as a philosophy that just puts humanity kind of in the center of its focus. And this actually starts as a Christian idea in a Christian context. And so you get the Renaissance where, you know, people are looking at kind of art and literature and all these things through this lens of what human creativity is capable of. But later on, what happens is you get uh, secular humanism, which explicitly disavows the idea of higher powers or higher values, transcendent things such as that. And so we get this idea that humanity is this kind of self-defining thing, right? So it's not just that we're focused on humanity. It's actually that humanity is the definition of itself. And so that's where humanism comes in. And I think where, you know, a lot of people, that's what they understand humanism to be about, really, is that ability to cut ourselves off from something higher. Yeah. Well, what about post-humanism and transhumanism? What do those mean and how should we how should we think about them? Yeah, so most people are going to encounter these in a secular context. And so what they mean in that context is essentially I would interpret it as trying to put the transcendent back into humanism. They both essentially say, no, it's not enough to define humanity in terms of itself. We need to define humanity in terms of something bigger or something greater or some future uh, transformation. We need something else to anchor our understanding of humanity too. And so, so transhumanism and posthumanism, they're pretty ambiguous and often conflated in these conversations, but mostly what people will mean by them is that transhumanism kind of says we are defined by what we can transform into or by, by what our future transformation will be like. And posthumanism says something like we are defined by the fact that one day we will transcend the um, human species altogether. And so what is the difference between transforming um, humanity and transcending humanity? That's a big question yeah. that I, I think uh, it, it means different things for different people. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about some of the people that are associated with this term transhumanism. One guy gets sort of front page news about him. It's Julian Huxley, who supposedly was the sort of coiner of the term 
in the early 50s, and he was a noted atheist and eugenicist, of all things. And and then you could forward to Nick Bostrom et al. here in our time. How how do we how do we separate the the word from the people that have promoted it as we're reclaiming it in some ways? Yeah, definitely. So one thing I think that helps to think about this is to understand where it actually came from, where this terminology came from, and um, some some people have done some some good work on this. Peter Harrison uh, uh, is one of them. Uh, he's someone who's been involved with the University of Edinburgh and and other places, but looked at the history of of the term transhumanism. And so Julian Huxley delivers this kind of manifesto in 1957 that talks about transhumanism as this new philosophy of humanity. Now he's actually drawing from conversations with a friend of his, um, Teilhard de Chardin, who's a Jesuit priest. And Teilhard de Chardin is trying to understand how to fit together modern science. He's a paleontologist. Uh, He's trying to fit together modern science with the Christian faith. And so as he's trying to wrestle with this, he starts using terms like transhumanism and so forth. And actually, a lot of people are using those terms. The first time we have it in, in writing is in 1940 in the phrase. The phrase is actually Paul's transhumanism. And it's quoting the New Testament as this idea of a higher orientation to life, that life is not oriented to, towards a kind of secular humanism, which says like we are defined by what we are, but towards this transcendent humanism, which says we are defined by our connection with something greater than us. And that opens up this path of transformation. And that actually shows up as a part of a translation of Dante. So, uh, you know, going back to the, you know, the 13th century, the transhumer, uh, the, the, it's talking about this the the beatific vision as a human encounters god and so that idea that humanity in encountering this greater expanse of life will be transformed into something it comes in through the christian tradition and then is explicitly picked up by uh, secular transhumanist like Huxley, who says, you know, I, I like everything I'm hearing. I just can't go with the <laughs> uh, the Christian part of it. And he, he, he says this. He actually writes the foreword to um, one of Teilhard de Chardin's books. And he says, I'm trying to track down a philosophy that's like this, but without the God part. And so that's how this enters into the secular transhumanist world is explicitly as this attempt to how can we have the transcendent idea of humanity but without the traditional source of of transcendence right and so i think looking at it this way as this attempt to to say like how do we how do we put the transcendence back into humanity essentially back into humanism I think that's a through line that carries through from Huxley to Bostrom and and so on and so forth. And I think looking at it as that that impulse, that drive, that desire, that fundamental orientation, which opens up a question that we can then step into the conversation and and try to um, try to address. I love that, which is fascinating because what you're saying, it's sort of a tug of war with this, this concept. You know, we started it, they took it, we're taking it back kind of thing. <laughs> well, you are. And, and maybe at the end of this podcast, we'll all be Christian transhumanists. Absolutely, but yeah. yeah. Is there some anchor point in scripture that this uh, priest refers to in Paul's writings? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, there's really a couple of different things, but, um, you know, there's the, there's phrases in the, the New Testament that says, and this is actually in the Epistle of John, I think, says, uh, we do not yet know what we shall be, but when he appears, we will be like him, for we will mm. see him as he is, mm. right? So our our true nature, our true destiny, the true future of humanity is not defined by anything we actually fully understand or fully grasp. It's in fact defined in the New Testament by Christ. And we, in that passage, say we don't even fully glimpse Christ, right? So we don't really even fully understand yet what Christ truly looks like. But when he appears, we will see and we will be like that. We will be transformed into that. So that is our, our future transformation. If you look at it, through like Paul in 2 Corinthians 3:18 talks about as we as we behold the image of God 
right? We are continually transformed ever increasingly into that image and that glory. So there's this, again, the idea that we are defined by the humanity of Christ, not by the the kind of finite humanity or fixed humanity of what we've seen before. We're defined by the humanity of Christ, and we're going to increasingly transform into that image. We are becoming what Christ is. Yeah, and the, the the references to like looking in a glass dimly, and the the metaphor of the seed going into the ground. We don't know what's going to come out in Corinthians. It talks about, you know, the, the seed is sown perishable, but raised imperishable. These are all sort of transformative phrases and even be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation is a big deal in the Bible. So, well, let's, let's move on to sort of what I'm way into in the artificial intelligence world and talk about transhumanism and artificial intelligence, or as you've called it, H plus and AI, which I love. I love that H plus. These are closely related terms and they kind of go back to this quest to transcend the limits of our humanness. So describe the Venn diagram here. What's unique to each and where's the overlap? Yeah. So AI, I think is, you know, it's, it's coming from the, the technological side. It's, something that people are building and creating. And what it is doing, of course, is it's innately kind of challenging the boundaries of how we understand humanity. And if you think about it, intelligence is this kind of defining characteristic of humanity and has been understood as this defining characteristic of humanity for millennia of Christian history, at least. And the church fathers talk about, you know, the the image of God essentially being this intelligent nature that we have. So now we're creating an artificial intelligence and that challenges really our understanding of ourselves. And it challenges our understanding of, yeah, what it is to be human, whether intelligence is something that uh, we truly possess in that kind of way. And so transhumanism is coming from the other angle. It's coming from a philosophical standpoint, and it's challenging our notion of being human just as a kind of starting point. It's saying, wait a second, what should we define uh, ourselves in terms of? And it's it's interesting to see actually different answers that come out of that. But both are challenging our understanding of humanity kind of from these different angles. And so they converge in this this real question of, yeah, what are we what will we become? What should we become? And the competing narratives of finding our fulfillment in Christ or finding some substitute on the planet to fulfill those desires is where these technologies take us, I think. Well, we talk, we've talked a little bit about already Christian transhumanism. As you described the, the true roots of the word transhumanism, it's actually can be found in, in Christian scripture and thought well before artificial intelligence hit the scene. But it still sounds like an oxymoron for people, especially Christians. How would you suggest that we sort of shed the baggage in our generation on on what this term means and how could we get rid of the oxymoronic nature of it? Yeah, well, as I said, you know, I, I think we're essentially looking at how do we define, how do we orient our understanding of who we are, who humanity is, who we should be? And so we're going to have secular transhumanism is going to have different answers to that. There's actually a number of different competing answers within transhumanism as to what that is. And uh, we Christian transhumanists are just going to say, well, that ultimate definition is going to be Christ, that that is our, our kind of North Star. That is um, what we understand ourselves to aspirationally be, you know, in the process of, of transforming to. That's the image that we are trying to transform to. And so we can kind of make it a little more practical, maybe. Um, and so we would say another kind of angle on this to say transhumanism is the ethical use of science and technology to transform the human condition, often to relieve suffering, often to extend human health and life and so forth. And when you say that, you say, well, what ethic? And like I said, there are several, <laughs> yeah. there are several different competing ethics. And we're just going to come in and say, and the ethic we're offering is discipleship of Christ. And we specifically would point to, you know, like Jesus talking about the greatest commandments. Um, and so we, uh, we want to orient it towards 
particularly what I would call relational values, such as trust, cooperation, love, things like that, that often get lost in those conversations about AI, about technology, about transhumanism, it can often become something that that loses those values altogether. So we want to put those ethical values at the center of any real transhumanism and say, this is, if we want a sustainable version of this, that's what it has to look like. Well, and that's what I was going to interject, but you paused long enough for me to not have to interrupt you. Ha ha ha. When we're talking about this ethic, I think most people would agree with all of the words that go with ethics, right? It's like beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, all of the bioethics ones. But then you get to the intractable scenarios where it's my way or your way. And the kind of mechanism that enables us to act out this kind of ethic. And so how would you this is just a leading question, but you know, transhumanism with Christ is actually workable where transhumanism without him isn't. So is that kind of where you go with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think as a Christian, I think that any path that isn't aiming towards Christ is ultimately a self-destructive path. And what I like about transhumanism and just entering this dialogue and discussion is that this becomes really apparent really fast. And people are very aware of it. So within the you know secular transhumanist discussion, a number of ethics I describe sometimes as radical individualism, radical humanism, and radical environmentalism. And and they're kind of like okay, there's the self-proclaimed egoists, um, where it's really <laughs> literally just all about uh, all about them. Yeah. And, the, and I'm not I'm not uh, caricaturing people. That's what they say. No, right. Um, there are there are the self self-identified humanitarians and, and humanists within this. And I think that's probably the majority of people. And then there's the people who actually want to use science and technology to relieve the suffering of the entire biosphere. And so you'll hear them talk about like lions and lambs laying down together. They use these like kind of biblical terms. Ideas, yeah. To, to try to feed into an agenda for the like bioethics. Right. And, um, and so those kinds of things, as soon as you get like looking at where that goes, because it is quite willing to put the foot on the accelerator and say, where does this lead to? Like, wh- how far can we take that particular ethic and what will it look like? And we were engaged in the in discussion uh, among the transhumanist community a few years ago where this egoism Explicit egoism was really kind of, uh, you know, some people were really being proponents of that. And we made um, some cases in, you know, transhumanist publications on transhumanist terms. Egoism will fail every <laughs> single time. And it, and not only that, it's a horrible idea for trying to program an AI, to build an AI whose singular goal is itself and, you know, destroy everyone else. Right. right. This, this This ethic won't work an ethic of relationship, an ethic of values, that's going to be the only thing that's sustainable over the long term. And, you know, people are very receptive to that because it's just logic. It just makes sense. Yeah. And to put a finer point on it, what we're talking about here is often overlapping, right? We we share some ideas. The rub comes on how. And I think that what the case you're making is basically evangelistic. You know, it's like we can all aim for the same things, but without Jesus, one path is going to fail. Well, we could talk about these things forever, but I have so many more things I want to ask you, Micah. Um, first of all, I want you to talk a little bit about your organization because it's a thing. Uh, people can visit your website at christiantranshumanist.org, but um, tell us about your mission and purpose and i.e. I, why or is it eg i don't remember why do you exist <laughs> and why what do you believe and yeah and then i also want you to address are you outliers as an organization or are you in good company with other people who have these same beliefs and values yeah so you know one thing to look at here so the christian transhumanist uh, association we're an ecumenical group uh and what we are kind of defined by is is 
what we've been talking about, using science and technology and our words uh, to participate in the work of God, right? So we want to, we're talking about different ways of using science and technology to transform the human condition. We're saying we want to do that in, in participation in the work of God and discipleship of Christ. And if you read the statements on our website, that's what we say essentially. And what we flesh that out because we kind of serve a couple of different purposes. One is to give Christians who are interested in engaging these things and thinking through them in a deep way, give them a place to kind of gather and and talk these issues out, talk these questions out, and deepen their kind of theology and and ultimately their faith commitment in engaging with these kinds of things. We're also a way for uh, secular transhumanists to engage from a, a different angle and get maybe a different view of what Christians are and what they can be and what Christianity is. And so we do, you know, we do a lot of online discussions. We do in-depth explorations of particular topics that are big in this area. We've done conferences and we just try to create these resources for people to, yeah, get plugged in and and get connected. And so you, you asked about being an outlier. So the transhumanist discussion in general is, is highly secular you know, predominantly atheist, but it's not entirely this way. And what you actually have is a number of people with kind of varying ideas and varying beliefs who are maybe looking for, in many cases, um, ways to kind of broaden out those ideas and connect it with something, you know, deeper. Maybe I would point to values and spirituality, something like this. And so um, we're also offering a resource for that. And I also would say, For Christians, I think we want to challenge Christians to step back and think about technology from a Christian theological perspective. I think many of us kind of approach technological conversations in the world right now as if it was like Apple and Google were these alien <laughs> forces that were dropping um, dropping things into our world or, you know, Facebook and so forth. But, you know, I would argue this is an insufficiently Christian idea of what technology actually is. Yeah. And I would go all the way back to Genesis 1, first page of the yeah. Bible, and say, what do you see there? What is it saying about what humanity is? And I would argue what we have in the first page of the Bible is God is a creator who shows us what that looks like. God is this caring, cultivating creator of life who then says, I'm going to create a being in my image and call it to participate in the same work of creating and cultivating life. And you see this play out through the next several chapters. Genesis 2, God had named and categorized creation in Genesis 1. Now he leads humanity to name and categorize creation. You see humans being given this charge to tend and cultivate nature. You see the creation of tools and musical instruments. And you see in Noah, which I think is really amazing, (laughs) you see that God, in his first story of redemption, God calls a human to construct a giant technological artifact to participate in the work of God, the mission of God to actually save the life of the world. And so we have this idea right in scripture. Science and technology is not something alien to us. It emerges from our nature as creative beings made in the image of God. And when we don't recognize that, then we leave it as this kind of secular thing. I think that's really a failure on the part of Christian thinkers. And, and, and I think we need to step up into this and say, this is part of who we are as being made in the image of God. How do we use it for good? How do we use it to participate in God's mission? Well, I might add that uh, Noah got a very specific algorithm for that artifact. Right. And <laughs> that's right. The same with the temple, right? It's exactly how big, yeah. exactly how yeah. long, what you put, what you yep. put where. So yeah, technology, <laughs> it's a complicated history with believers in technology. On one hand, you have this fear of tower of babbling it, and it leads to technophobia and withdrawal from the world. But on the other hand, Christians, visionary Christians, I should say, throughout history have also embraced technology from roads the printing press, television, televangelists. We won't go too deeply into that. But Zoom, right? I mean, I've had prayer prayer calls on Zoom for the last year and a half. And this is what you lean to in aiding human flourishing and advancing the kingdom of God. So I'm going to paraphrase Dr. Strangelove and say, how do we stop worrying and learn to love AI? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's great. So yeah, I I definitely want to say there are huge dangers. And this is part of why we should, you know, be engaged with this kind of thing, because with power comes great responsibility, right? Like, um, and, and technology is power and, and technology is something that I would say God gave us. God gave us this ability. So God gave us a power that has this destructive capacity built into it. So you do have the the potential for Tower of Babels. You do have all of these kinds of other destructive things. Now, what I think is really helpful is to understand that these kind of stories of the destructive potential of technology are always contained within this larger story of blessing and redemption. And so you see Tower of Babel, it bookends with um, the story of Noah and the ark, right? So you hear have a destructive use of technology and a, a redemptive use of technology. You have people who are responding to the calling of God to use technology in particular ways and people who are rejecting the calling of God. And it, I think if you look at, at the Tower of Babel story in detail, what you will see is is actually very connected to the story of Noah. When Noah emerges from the ark, God says to, you know, he reiterates the blessing of Genesis 1. He says, this is humanity as I envision it. <laughs> you know, go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the first thing the people at Babel say is, we don't want to <laughs> fill the earth. We don't want to do that. How about we build a tower instead so we can stay here and never have to leave? Uh. And and you can see this kind of thing play out in history where instead of taking this outward mission of God, we say, no, no, no. How do we, how do we, you know, close in on ourselves? How do we build, build a, a thing here that will keep us safe so we never have to go out and do the thing that God actually wants us to do? And so what, what God does in these stories is then he enters, I think, and transforms our destructive technology into something good. And so you have this idea in scripture of beating swords into plowshares, right? So the, the sword is a tool of destruction, which through with working with God, we can, we can turn into a tool of life, of cultivating life. And so we don't worry if we're building uh, buildings that are too tall today. I think most of us don't think that that's the takeaway of the story. We understand that buildings can be a blessing when they are done, you know, in keeping with the purposes of of God and the ultimate kind of transformation, the ultimate beating of swords into plowshares, I would say is the cross, right? Christ does this. Christ takes a, a tool of destruction and death that the Roman Empire uses as its main source of power and he transforms it. He essentially takes it out of their hand, transforms it into a tool of life and essentially destroys the destructive power there. We we don't do that kind of <laughs> death anymore. And the Roman Empire as, as it existed is not around anymore. And instead that has become a symbol of life and blessing to billions of people. Something else you said was just interesting, kind of off the topic, but if you look at the Tower of Babel and God's response to it was to confuse their languages, and now you look at technology and you've got natural language processing, NLP translation software, and it's like using technology to bring that communication back. I can speak into something and someone can understand me. And if you, if you read it literally, you'd go, well, that's not good. But no, that's the point. God wants us to be communal beings and so on. So, all right, moving on, because like I said, so many questions, so little time. You and I talked about a couple different flavors of AI being discussed today and how it makes a difference in what we think about it. Um, I'm going to call them Hollywood AI, which is that general artificial intelligence where movie robots go rogue. And then science AI, which is more the narrow AI that's already doing specific tasks to augment and enhance humanity. So why does it matter, Micah, whether we're talking about one kind or the other in terms of how we see transhumanism and our vision of the future? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the confusion between these two things really obstructs our ability to talk about them and to think about them. So what I encounter in talking with Christians a lot is they say, well, I don't believe that we're going to get the Terminator or whatever. I don't believe that that can happen. So therefore, I'm not going to 
think about or worry about AI. And I think that's a, a real mistake because, yeah, it, it's not a question of whether the, the Terminator or whatever can happen. It's it's that AI, this narrow kind of AI is already with us and is already transforming the world around us in really profound ways. And so um, the the real kind of simple example would be that when I talk to my grandmother, the, the majority of interactions I have with my grandmother now are through something like Facebook. And so what that means is we've actually put an algorithm in between me and her. And that algorithm is choosing things about how that relationship plays out. Which of my grandmother's posts and photos and so forth do I see? Which does she see? And that's a narrow form of AI, but it's incredibly powerful. It's encompassing the entire world. And it's, it's shaping the, the way that our relationships play out. And so we have to think about this um, because for most people that's invisible. And we often assume that it's kind of transparent in some sense as TV. Like if we turn on the TV, we're going to see something that everybody else is seeing and so forth. That's not the case with social media because there is artificial intelligence actually running it. And the question is, what are those algorithms? What are they doing? How do we actually understand that? How do we use them? for good because they are transforming everything from our social relationships to how our cars work to just everything. And and as we continue, I think people underestimate how much is already being transformed in this way and drastically underestimate how much uh, is about to be transformed right. this way. Well, and, and that actually leads to, and I don't, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but I mean, we're worried about the rogue robots and we are sort of numbed into existence or to coexistence with these other forms of AI, the narrow AI, but it seems almost scarier when it's insidious. So how do, how do we have agency over this? We don't control the algorithms, but we continue to use, except on days when everything crashes or 60 minutes does a terrible expose. How can we engage with this? Is there some practical way to to address it? Yeah, I, I, it's very difficult um, because because it is so pervasive. And I think we get horrified when we see an, an expose or something like this, because we're like, shouldn't these people have been taking care of us? You know, like, shouldn't they have been basically keeping our best interest in the forefront? And and if you think about it, that's another algorithm that, that these things are playing out in. So Really, as a software developer, I was talking to somebody, uh, a, a project manager the other day, and she was saying, you know, I don't think the developers know what is actually happening here. They're, they're, they don't actually understand what they're building. And this is, I, in my experience, this is probably correct about, yeah, about how software development happens. You, you kind of optimize for a few things and you build and you kind of hope it goes in a good direction and you don't see these unintended consequences. And so, yeah, so this is very tough and it's, it's at the level of essentially our ecosystem almost, right? That that's essentially the scale we're dealing with where it's like, well, how do you fight the weather? You know, we, (laughs) we aren't quite sure, you know, which butterfly started that hurricane or whatever, you know, like, and so you can't just say, Hey, you programmer, go in and program ethics to this, that you can't like give it the rules of robotics as, as Isaac Asimov, you know, specified, you actually have to think about the, the ecosystem of technology itself. And so one of the big things would be decentralization. So we kind of understand that when Facebook makes decisions, they affect us all because it's a heavily centralized system and it has a very limited amount of accountability to us, right? These algorithms that are changing my relationship with my grandmother don't have to answer to me about how they have done this. And so I think just starting with that, that understanding of like, we need to take a more active, a more active role in the algorithms that are, that are shaping our lives. That means we need to take more interest. It means we need to search for ways to actually build in greater levels of responsibility, which the first thing is going to be working on decentralizing these things, thinking about 
how we choose our tools in a more conscious way. Uh, there's a lot of things we could, you know, try to do from that that are going to be more practical, but that's where it starts. Well, and I hear in this, the subtext is a call to Christians not to run away from it. One of our first reactions is, well, I can't do anything about it. I don't even know anything about it. Uh, so I'll just abdicate that throne to the people that do. And it turns out that their worldviews don't necessarily align with ours. So, Moving into then this, it's a similar kind of, but extension of this topic. We talked about ritual and liturgy as a means of formation, spiritual formation. And, and, and you've actually broadened my horizons by talking about the rituals and liturgies embedded in our technologies that are shaping and forming us too. So I want you to talk about that topic for a little bit and how algorithms are like Christian praxis and how we can design them to ensure that they're not at odds with our values. Yeah, well, I think if you think about like what you know the the Christian tradition has has done and worked on over the the millennia, is that it has worked on these these kind of tools of spiritual formation. So you can think about big things like cathedrals taking you know generations to build. You can think about small things like like hymns, you know, and spiritual songs and written prayers, things like this that are used because we we believe they have this formative ability, right? When we engage them in a certain way, they have a, a ability to help shape us in the and our character in the way that we want it to. And so you can think about a tradition in the sense as the creation of this infrastructure, these tools for the shaping of who we are as individuals, as communities, and then ultimately that bleeds over into the world, right? You know, this is the same thing that happens in technology. And I was I was watching a video the other day about the this guy who's a programmer and he was trying to solve some problem and his his wife took a three week vacation to visit her parents and take their kid and and he was like, Okay, I've got three weeks to solve this problem. And he sat down and wrote Unix. And Unix is the <laughs> operating system that runs basically the the entire world now. And so this guy, whatever problems he was trying to solve in that moment, he solved by creating this tool that then shapes everything else. And this is the thing that happens is that we we do this, we build something, and then everyone builds on top of it. And then the next generation builds on top of that and builds on top of that and builds on top of that. And so we we don't frequently go back and change those foundations. We build on top of them. And so the, the things that form those foundations then form our world, our lives in, in some really profound um, ways that for most of us are are invisible. But it plays out in in these things the things the way that we use our tools becomes the foundation of how um software is built tomorrow and and you can see this actually play out in twitter in its history when it was first introduced it was just messages and then people started uh using the at sign to uh, to identify that they were talking about someone or a hashtag to, you know, and these are things that came up from the community. The way the community was actually using the tool became the foundation of how Twitter actually works and then bled over into all these other things. So we have this agency in the, in the tools that we are actually shaping them and then shaping the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. And it shows up again and again, the algorithms that shape the way our relationships work, the way we interact with, with businesses, with our government, with other people, all of this comes out of that. And it is the expression of the same kind of process. You know, in a previous podcast, I interviewed a programming languages researcher named Simon Payton Jones. He's a bit of a rock star on YouTube because he's so entertaining and so smart. But he gave me this visual and, and all my listeners as well of software programs being among the greatest architectural achievements of man, meaning that we think of architecture as tall buildings. We've referred to skyscrapers and things as huge monuments to human ingenuity, but I'm thinking of mountains under the sea, right? We can't see below, but there's tall mountains from the sea floor that are actually greater than Everest. So this idea of technology being a bit invisible and transparent to us doesn't mean it isn't the most amazing technical achievement 
architectural achievement, as it were. All right. Well, well, let's switch streams and talk about limits for a minute. We usually think about putting limits on bad things, but what about limits on good things? I love this quote from St. Francis de Sales, who said, true virtue has no limits, but goes on and on and would become infinite if it could meet with a heart capable of infinity. This is such an interesting idea. I usually don't think of it in those terms. So how might this adjust our thinking about Christian transhumanism and how much is too much with technology? Absolutely. Well, so what I love about the Christian tradition is that really like the the most profound thinkers and theologians have been people who embrace this idea of of essentially the infinite. You know, Gregory of Nyssa talks about our journey uh, as this infinite unfolding journey of being transformed into the image and likeness of God, right? So it's not it's not something finite. And it, it, he talks about it as the farther we go, the more we desire it. And so the more we desire, the more there is to fulfill that desire, essentially, because God is boundless and limitless and is always able to supply that. And C.S. Lewis, you know, that's, that's his vision as well. It, even in the Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia at the at the end they enter Aslan's country and then it's further up and further in they're always there's always more unfolding the inside is bigger than the outside and they're they're kind of ever going into God's glory and so this is what this quote is is really pointing to is like when we're ta- when we're on the trail of something that's truly deeply good there is no limit to it we shouldn't want there to be a limit and I think this is a more helpful way for us to think about some of these things, because when when we talk about technology from a Christian perspective, one of the big things that people start to talk about is they start to say, well, how far is too far? How much medical technology, you know, at which point do we stop being human or, you know, something like this? And those, you know, those are, are real and meaningful questions, but I think they are framed in a way that, that really keeps us from getting at the answer. And that the answer is that there is no limit. There is no too far. It really is like, which direction are we going? We can go towards a direction that's more and more like being the image of God, or we can go toward a direction that's more and more towards being dehumanized and, and you know, like losing those things that, that we value. So theologically, I would just say, you know, it's like, are you going towards God or are you going towards the devil? Um, <laughs> uh, practically. It's not really funny, um, but... I laugh anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, that's ultimately what our choices, you know, come down to. And we can we can orient this in a very practical way, in a way that helps play out, in, you know, like even in hospitals and making decisions there. When we say something like, "What is it that we're seeking?" and I would say it's we're seeking creative relational life. We're seeking to be able to contribute. We're seeking to live in relationship with others and to be creative productive individuals in that way, right? Like relationally. And I think that's what we see defining us in Genesis one. And and that is a, a guideline, not a limit, a guideline about what kinds of choices we want to make in technology, in medicine, in interventions, and all these kinds of things. And I think actually it's helpful too, because when, when people talk about things like how long do you want to live? It's really not about how long for people. It's actually about like what condition do you want to live in? What kind of relational situation do you want to exist in? What do you want to be able to contribute and how do you want to be able to relate? I think when we keep that in in mind, rather than questioning like limits, I think we actually get much closer to what we need to be focused on and need to be thinking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to ask you, in light of that, because it brought to mind Ray Kurzweil, whose statement in The Singularity is near is that we'll have the ability to live as long as we want. And then he puts in parentheses a subtle distinction from forever. And prior to this, some of the questions that arose were, well, what does a planet look like when nobody dies when they don't want to? What do we do with resources? But a more common one, and it's one you talked about, is what are the unintended consequences, say, if I froze myself? till the disease that I have has a cure. 
What issues am I not thinking about that I should be thinking about, Micah? And how does that change the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So for people who don't know, secular transhumanists since the 60s and, and maybe before, were kind of quite aware that many of the the medical technologies that they were looking for would probably not develop during their lifetime. So they're, they are saying, okay, so I'm probably going to die. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to miss out on all these new technologies that could extend my life. So what can I do? And so from this, I think the sixties, people started looking at cryonics, this case of like freezing yourself just after death in the hopes of being revived later, you know, by someone who can actually fix the, the illness, fix your body, you know, put you back together and basically, you know, keep you living. And so um, it's interesting. Um, Christianity Today actually uh, addressed this in 68 and said, you know, Christians have nothing to fear from this. We're happy to send Christian missionaries into the cryonic future. <laughs> and um, but what happens is, I, and I think uh, it's a big blind spot. Um, people who are looking at that often are not considering the other side of it, which is, okay, I understand the technology of putting myself on, you know, on, on liquid nitrogen or whatever and, and freezing my body, but who's going to bring me back? And will they want to? <laughs> That's right. Will they want to bring me back? Who's going to do it? And what are they going to do with me once they do, right? And this is a set of questions that are relational questions. And once you start thinking in those terms, then you say, well, wait a second, I need to not just invest in my liquid nitrogen fund. I also need to invest in, uh, am I going to be leaving behind a community of people who will care about me? You know, am I going to be leaving behind a world that's actually going to be um, functional enough and compassionate enough not to pull us out of ice and then torture us, with, <laughs> you know, for, for medical experiments, you know, something right. like this, right? So, so you're actually needing to deal with these big picture questions of relationships, of values, of the kinds of, of world we're building. And I think a lot of people who, who have engaged in thinking about cryonics have missed this whole necessary relational element. And this goes back to what we said a while back. When you pursue something, you know, an ethic long enough, if you're missing Christ in there, it's going to end up being unsustainable. And cryonics itself is unsustainable. But investing in relationships, investing in communities, investing in the world and making it better and so forth, that actually is something that, that pays off in, in the long run in a big way. And, and so you end up seeing as secular transhumanists engage these kinds of questions and start to realize some of these things that come up, they actually start recreating these ideas. So they start thinking, how do we actually cultivate long-term communities, what would that look like? And, you know, at the end of the day, as a Christian, I'm going to say that looks a lot like the church. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think too, this idea of, of cryonics and other preservation techniques is all fairly narcissistic. I mean, it's like, I'm pretty great and I certainly should be able to live as long as I want or forever, but it's hard enough to like me right now. Will these other people in the future be as interested in me as I am interested in me? But anyway. Yeah. Well, that goes like, it goes back to what I was uh, talking earlier about egoism yeah. as an, as an ethical like uh, basis. And so what I want to see is I want to see these kinds of technologies used to build up relationships, to build up communities, to build up the world, ultimately to build up life itself. Um, and I think if you pursue it as an egoistic uh, thing or a narcissistic uh, basis, um, it's it's going to lead to bad things. It's going to fail. It's not going to work. Uh, and it's going to be destructive. Well, and we haven't even touched on the fact of what we believe about heaven and that, you know, do I really want to extend life on earth as crummy as it can be? If I believe in this transcendent eternal home of heaven and the glory of God being there all the time, the best of everything back to back to paradise. So I want to end on a kind of broad claim opportunity for you. Your website claims that the most significant conversations impacting the future of humanity should involve Christians. 
So as we wrap up, I want to give you the chance to make your closing argument. Why should Christians be involved in the science of artificial intelligence and transhumanism? And perhaps more importantly, how can we be involved? I'll give you the last word. Yeah, thanks so much. So I would say, you know, these are the technologies that are already shaping our world and will continue to shape our world in really profound ways. The thing is that there are ethics at work in these technologies, ethics at work shaping these technologies, ethical visions that are shaping these technologies. If you look at someone like Elon Musk, as a young man, he made a list of the most pressing problems facing the future. And he set out to um, to solve those. And he has kind of gone down that list and, and checked it off. And you say, well, okay, where did that list come from? Mm. Where was that ethical vision being shaped? And the answer actually is small communities of people talking about these kinds of radical futurist ideas um, long before it seemed like a reasonable or realistic thing to concern yourself with. So a small group of people sitting around uh, a few decades ago talking about these kinds of ethical issues actually shaped huge swaths of the future of our world already. And those conversations should involve people of faith. Um, and they should involve people of faith for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is because the majority of people in the world have some kind of religion of some kind. It, it makes sense that, that that perspective would be at play here. But also because as, as a Christian, I think the ethical vision we have to offer is the one that can make a better world, actually has that ability. And I think that should be brought to bear. That should be in those conversations that then are upstream of all of these profound changes. And so the question of how, we've already talked about some of the ways we can maybe try to be more conscious of how things are shaping us. But in terms of how we actually shape those things, it really is not all that hard. Small groups of people have profound outsized effect in these conversations. So you can enter into this conversation with other Christians, with other people who are thinking about these things, and your ability to think through these issues, discuss these issues, wrestle with these issues, be challenged by these issues, will actually have a profound effect on how these conversations develop and how the technologies that get built ultimately shape our world, humanity, the planet, and beyond. Micah Redding, this has been so fun and so interesting, and I think there's a thousand other things we could talk about, but no time left now. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been great here. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. That's H-E-N-N-E jewelers.com.